From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this time, what I'd like to share is the glories of... Well, let me, let me get you into it through the back door. Let's say that you try to learn some Japanese, as ever more people do these days. Well, Japanese can seem quite the challenge for we English speakers, partly because you don't get very many cognates. The words are all of a completely different shape than we're expecting. But also because Japanese seems, from our perspective, to have crazy word order. It seems like it's almost deliberate. And so, for example, let's say somebody is named Shuichi. And you're talking about something that Shuichi's friend did. Shuichi's friend bought a book in Osaka. Okay, simple sentence. In Japanese, the way you say that is Shuichi of friend, Osaka in, a book bought. Shuichi no tomodachi, Osaka de honno katta. Katta is bought all the way at the end. So, Shuichi of friend, Osaka in, a book bought. Why do you have to put it that way? Why is it all backwards and screwed up? Well, you know, that sort of thing makes more sense than you think. As I often say, linguistics is about at least trying to find the order in chaos. And the question is, why is word order so different from language to language? And the answer is that word order varies in ways that make a certain kind of sense. And often, word order variations mean something or they do something. So from English, it just seems so natural that everything would be subject, verb, object, the boy, bounced a ball. You figure, what are you talking about? The boy. What did the boy do? He bounced. And what did he bounce? Well, something, say a ball. That seems so natural. Not necessarily SVO, as we call it, subject, verb, object. That's just one of many ways of being a language. So, for example, English is SVO. Japanese, though, is what we linguists call SOV. That means subject, object, verb. So, the boy, the ball bounced. And you can kind of get used to thinking of it that way. Just say it to yourself a few times. Not the boy bounced the ball. The boy, the ball bounced. The boy, the ball bounced. Kind of like the boy babysat, sat the baby. You know, we can do SOV when we want to. Well, in Japanese, you want to all the time. So, SOV is not weird. It's just that the whole key to how word order works in that language is different from ours. Very specifically, Japanese is, in that regard, head final. What do I mean by head? Well, what I mean is that in English, the main thing in a little chunk of a sentence comes first. And so, for example, let's say that the boy bounced the red ball. So, bounced the red ball. You've got the verb, and then, well, what did the boy bounce? A red ball. But the verb comes first. So, that little verby part of the package, bounced the red ball, to the extent that all of that goes together, that there are two halves, basically, the boy, and then bounced the red ball. The verb comes first. That's the way we expect things to go. If you've got a preposition in what it refers to, something like, you know, I'm in the house, or I'm under the car, or this is a book about a boy. Well, okay, the main thing there is the preposition. That's telling you where you are, what it's about, in the house, about a boy, under the car. And that distinguishing thing, the boy bounced the ball in Philadelphia. 
Well, okay, the in comes first. In fact, we call it a preposition in Philadelphia, not Philadelphia in. From English, we think of head first as being normal, but lots and lots of languages are head final. And so that means that the boy, the ball bounced, that Shuichi in Osaka, a book bought. Or notice that it's Shuichi Osaka in, because it isn't a preposition, it's a postposition. That's actually what we call it. You can have two things. The generic term is adposition, and adposition can be either pre or post. We have prepositions. The Japanese have postpositions. So it just makes sense. If you're going to say, Shuichi of friend a book bought, well, if you're going to specify where it happened, it's not going to be in Osaka. It's going to be Osaka in. The two things go together because in this language, the head comes last. So all these things make perfect sense. And if you're thinking of things that way, then Japanese just feels predictable. You figure, oh, it's going to be head final. And then you know how the word order is going to go. You're going to know that it's going to be Shuichi Osaka in a book bought. You know it's all going to be backwards. It's very elegant. And you know, while we're on Japanese and it's kind of time for one of the clips, let's use something that's Japanese, but not stupid and kitschy. Let's use Stephen Sondheim's musical Pacific Overtures about Japan's opening to the West over time. Believe it or not, there was a musical about that. It will not surprise you that it flopped first, but it has since become very much a cherished item and has run again on Broadway. This is a bowler hat from it, and it's about a Japanese man's transition to Western ways. I think it's quite beautiful. It's not peppy, but I have to have Pacific Overtures in this show at least once. So here is a part of a bowler hat from Pacific Overtures 1976. This, by the way, is the actor Isao Sato doing this role. I wind my pocket watch. We serve white wine. The house is far too small. I killed a spider on the wall. But none of the servants thought it was a lucky sign. I read Spinoza every day for me, Dabler. Where is my bowler hat? I've left my wife No bird exploring in the sky Explores as well as I The corners of my life One must keep moving with the times The Dutch ambassador is a fool He wears a bowler hat so, we're in this head-final world, and specifically, we're talking about subject-object-verb languages, SOV. And you know, SOV, as funky as it seems to us from a language like English or Spanish, is actually a little more common than SVO in terms of languages around the world. I think the figure is something like 41% 
of languages are SOV and only about 35%, say over a third, are SVO. There is nothing exotic about SOV. In the linguistic world, you get very used to it. So, for example, Proto-Indo-European, that language that fathered most of the languages of Europe and a great many of Asia and was born on the steppes of Ukraine, that language was almost certainly an SOV language, not an SVO. And you see evidence of it in all kinds of ways that lead to that conclusion. So, for example, if you ever had any Latin, think about how Latin's word order seems so crazy. Often it's described as free, but there were tendencies and there are ways that you can see Latin as an SOV language. Think of the classic kind of schoolboy sentence. Caesar withdrew his forces to the nearest hill. Caesar suas copias in proximum colem subducit. That means Caesar, his forces to the nearest hill withdrew. Caesar suas copias, his forces in proximum colem to the nearest hill subducit. And that is withdrew. I think I've come up with, that's going to be the Latin voice from now on. I don't know what that is. But that is a typical Latin sentence, and that is S-O-V, with that withdrawing at the end. Or think about a little quirk in Romance languages that to us in English always seems kind of odd. So, I have it, Spanish. Yo lo tengo. So, tengo, that's have. Yo, I think you know what that means. The lo is the it. So, we would think that it would be, yo tengo lo, I have it. Why not? Why is it, yo lo tengo? When, actually, if you were going to talk about having, say, a dog, it would be, yo tengo un perro. So, I have a dog. To us, that feels normal. But then if you say, I have a dog. No, I have it. Then all of a sudden, you have to put the pronoun before and say, yo lo tengo. Well, what is that? Well, one thing that is, is it's S-O-V. That is a remnant of the fact that Romance languages are derived from languages where S-O-V was okay. And so, yo, subject, lo, that's an object, and then tengo, that's a V. It's just peeking out from behind Indo-European languages all over the place. German, his father says that he feels better. Sein Vater, his father, sagt, says that das, he feels better. Er sich besser fühlt. He himself better feels. So, sein Vater sagt, dass er sich besser fühlt. Okay, well, fühlt is feels, and that's at the end. That's only in the subordinate clauses in German, but why? That's the original situation. The fact that in the main clause, you have good old SVO so often in German. That's later. And so, German ends up leaving things the way they were over in the quiet, conservative aspect of things over in the subordinate clause that nobody cares about, whereas all the change happened up in the main clause. So, her father kicked a ball. Not her father a ball kicked. Not her father a ball kicked. Her father kicked a ball. And then her father says that he feels better. Her father says that he better feels. That's because of this SOV business. SOV is the word order in the Asian Indo-European languages in general, the ones of India, the ones of Iran, and even in this language that I'm speaking now. 
Listen to this is a justly forgotten sitcom that did radio. It was on TV. There were a couple of movies. There were comic books drawn by the Archie people. My friend Irma was a major franchise in the late 40s and early 50s. And it was it was about a quote unquote dumb blonde, and she has a dumb semi-criminal boyfriend. And here is one episode from 1948, and listen to the language that the boyfriend goes into when he's striking a jolly, archaic tone, trying to give her an engagement ring that he did not buy. Go ahead, Al. It's beautiful. But east is east, and west is west. And as Mark Twain said, we have met. (laughs) And having met, I hereby with this ring, thee do engage. Your hand, my love. Here, Al. Al, what's the matter? Can't find the ring. Oh, Al. Turn the lights on, chicken. That, for the record, was Marie Wilson and John Brown, if you care. In any case, with this ring, thee do engage. So with this ring, I thee do engage. And so subject, object, verb. That's something that earlier English could do and did quite often. Old English really liked itself some SOV. And yet, here we are. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And finally, another indication that SOV is quite natural is that sign languages tend to be SOV. They all can at least have SOV sentences as one option, and they tend to emerge as SOV, even if they start doing more SVO later. It is a major element of being a sign language to come out as SOV, not SVO. So, the boy, the ball bounced. Perfectly natural in a sign language to first do the boy and then do the ball and then indicate the bouncing. And in answer to your very reasonable question, this is one that I get often, in answer to the question as to why I haven't done an episode or episodes on sign language, because there are a great many of them, they are language, just like spoken language, and they are hugely interesting. If you think about it, you know the answer. I don't think this would be the best medium for doing sign language. There would have to be some special visual episode because you, you can't see it. Just want you to know, I love sign language. I've written a little bit about them. I think they're fascinating, but this would have to be a different kind of show for me to really do sign language justice. But what I just said is something that really must be kept in mind. There's only one hair out of place to give you a sense of how the science really goes, trying to decide about SOV. Frankly, there are linguists, and not just a few, who think that language emerged as SOV, that the first language would have been SOV, and that the ones that are SVO, like ours, are just a later development. And if you look at languages around the world, very often we can see SOV languages becoming SVO, but almost never the other way around, and usually for quirky reasons having to do with people coming together, not just as a natural step-by-step development. So there are people who think SOV was first, and then you look at sign languages, and it certainly looks like that would be the case, but The problem is, if 
language breaks down into, say, a pigeon, where people are just using a few hundred words and a little bit of grammar in some situation of trade or unfortunately some situation of forced captivity, as happened with the slave trade. If language breaks down into a pigeon and then is built up again into a real language, then even if a lot of languages in whatever context that was were SOV, then the Creole that comes out is SVO. That seems to have happened enough that there seems to be something about SVO in that sense. So, for example, in Guyana, there was one very peculiar language that was created apparently by both slaves and Native Americans who were living there in interaction with the Dutch. There was something called Burbese Dutch. Dutch is SOV in the same way as German. So lots and lots of sentences have SOV in them. Then, for reasons that are probably not recoverable, the Africans who created this language pretty much all seem to have spoken one African language called Ijo. And Ijo happens to be an SOV language. So all these people came together. There's SOV all over the place. It's the default order from Ijo. It's about half of the time in Dutch. And yet Berbice Dutch was, the language is dead now, but it was SVO. So there's a hair out of place. But SOV is possibly the default setting of language. And so it's not Japanese that's strange. In a way, it's English that's strange. I want to play this for you just because I like it and it's been in my head over about the past week. Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, you just know that they would have done a Broadway show at some point. And of course they did. And it was 1969. It was called Golden Rainbow. And you just know, as wonderful as they were, that it was going to be this kind of glitzy Vegas thing that kind of came and went and was just designed to show them off. And that is exactly what it was. It had these delightful songs by Walter Marks, who I met once, actually, and Ernest Kinoy, who I didn't. He did the lyrics. And the cast album is a great listen. It's got this late 60s TV variety show kind of arrangement. And Edie Gourmet was one hell of a singer. So this is a song called He Needs Me Now. She's singing about her nephew, of all things, but the arrangement here is just spectacular. Here's He Needs Me Now. Just just listen to this. So with this, she walks on. You know that the orchestra had to stop here and everybody clapped for Edie Gourmet because this was her entrance. And now listen to the arrangement underneath. You've done it again. So it's no wonder with him for a father. Listen to those two stings on the trumpet. They didn't have to put that in and it really makes it sound ruminative. Your dad should have left you with me. But don't you worry, dear Now your Aunt Judy's here He needs me now My heart can feel it He needs me now And so I must go to him Oh, yes, I have. 
So those of you who are numerate, which I sometimes am not, may have noticed that I said, well, SOV languages are about 41% and then SVO languages are only about a third. And you're thinking, well, that leaves a certain amount of space within the 100%. And you were correct. And that is because all six of the possible permutations of Sness, Venus, and Onus exist. There is SOV, there is SVO, and there is, even though you might not think it, there is VSO. There are languages where the verb has to come first, and then you talk about what's being verbed and what's verbing. Those languages are, for example, Celtic. So languages like Welsh and Irish, they are highly unlike English, much less like English than you might think because of the issue of just geographical contiguity. And one indication of that is that the verbs come first. Or Polynesian languages, and so Samoan, Hawaiian, those are VSO languages. So when you're wrapping your head around those languages, the first thing that throws you is the verb always comes first, when from our English perspective, you think, well, certainly we're going to start with the subject. What is it about? And as exotique as this VSO might seem, and you find it here and there all over the world, including classical Arabic, classical Arabic liked itself some VSO, you can see that processing language with the verb first is not as impossible as it might feel. For example, even in English, we're going to go try to raise this money, said Henry. Okay, well, said Henry is VS, said Henry. Or, Ba ba black sheep, have you any wool? Have you any wool? Have you a book? That is VSO. Have you any wool? Well, we use it in a question, short step from it being something you do in a question to maybe it becoming just the ordinary way of expressing yourself. German, again, is one of these things. And so I eat fish. Ich esse Fisch. Okay. I often eat fish, not ich oft esse fish. German has this thing where the esse, the verb, refuses to move. The verb is very heavy, so everything has to move around it, like some old building that you know has the historical register behind it, and so all the skyscrapers get built around it, and there's still this little brownstone sitting there while all the cars are going by, that sort of thing. So not ich esse oft fish. Essa is going to stay in that second place. And so, oft esse ich fish. Often eat I fish. That's the way you do it. But if you say, oft esse ich fish, well, then that's oft verb subject object. So, V-S-O. So, you've got the V-S-O there in a language like German that seems to almost be flirting with it. And there are languages where the flirtation led to an eternal bond. And so, you get these V-S-O languages. That's the next most common order. So, S-O-V is first, then S-V-O, and we feel like we're in normal territory, but it's only like one in three in a bit. And then next most common is V-S-O. Now, one order that really feels counterintuitive to us, though, is doing it completely backwards from what we know. So SVO, if that's normal, then OVS. So the ball bounces the boy. And what you mean is that the boy bounces the ball. You'd think that wouldn't exist. And for very reasonable reasons, linguists thought that such a thing just couldn't exist for a long time. And then, oddly enough, in the 1970s, languages that were OVS started to pop up in the Amazon. There aren't many, 
but it does happen. There are languages where your default way of saying things is to say something like the the ball. I can barely do it myself. The ball bounced the boy. So, for example, one of the languages is called Hishkaryana. Beautiful word, Hishkaryana. And in Hishkaryana, if you want to say the jaguar ate the man, well, man is toto. Kamara is jaguar. And so the way you say the jaguar ate the man is toto yonoye kamara. And it is quite, quite specifically, the man ate the jaguar. And you know that a man wouldn't eat a jaguar. You can tell cats don't taste good. And you can imagine the big cats taste worse. It wasn't that. It wasn't no matter how hungry he was. It's the man ate the jaguar. Now, how in the world would that happen? Why would people do that? And it's reasonable to ask because, you know, sign languages do not come out OVS. Creole languages don't come out OVS. Most languages don't come out that way. So there must be a story. And the story is that OVS languages start as SOV. Then the OV package, the sort of in Osaka, a book bought, that package goes up to the front. And so then you get OV and then S as a kind of an afterthought. So, for example, you would start with something like, my wife to me a hammock gave. Very Japanese. My wife to me a hammock gave. Then you might change that to, hammock gave my wife to me. Hammock gave my wife to me. And next thing you know, that's default. And hammock gave is O-V, my wife to me. And then my wife, subject. So that's the way it can go. Languages, again, flirt with this sort of thing all the time. It's not as bizarre as you think. So, for example, my favorite language, Russian, has this. And so you're always seeing in a cartoon dogs chasing cats. Well, suppose a cat is chasing a dog. And so let's say that you're listening to like, and there's some, something's going on, and you don't get to quite see it, and you're hearing it more than you're seeing it, and you say, wait a minute, what's chasing the dog? And then somebody says, oh, honey, the cat's chasing the dog. Well, that's a little odd. And in Russian, if it's something that's kind of odd like that, if it's some new observation, well, you put it at the end. And so in Russian, the way that you would say, oh, the cat's chasing the dog, is you would say, the dog's chasing the cat. And you can get away with it because Russian marks the dog as an object with a little change. And so you know, even though the dog comes first, that it's an object. So the word for dog is sabaka. If something's doing something to the dog, it's a sabaku. So what's chasing the dog? You say, sabaku preselyur koshka. Now, you know koshka is a cat. That could be nothing else. A koshka is not a giraffe. A koshka is not a cushion. A koshka is something that goes meow. It's a girl cat. So you would say, sabaku preselyur koshka. And anybody would know that you don't mean that the dog is chasing the cat, partly because sabaku means that the dog is an object. But you put it at the end, meaning that that's an OVS sentence. In Russian, to go, object, verb, subject is perfectly normal. In English, think about this. This program was brought to you by Tide. Tide gets your clothes their cleanest, or whatever the the slogan was. Well, default would be, Tide brought you this program. Notice they didn't put it that way. They said, this program was brought to you by Tide. This 
object was verbed to you by the subject. That's an O-V-S structure. We use it again to put things in a certain way. You want to focus this time not on the kitty cat, but on the tide. And so O-V-S is not that odd. Or even, even in more casual language, and I have to dig up something obscure here, this is the title number of Top Banana, a musical about burlesque comedians headed by Phil Silvers in 1951. There's a very good recording of this. You can also see it. It was practically filmed on stage and you know, dirty prints of it are online or you can purchase what you end up buying is the same fucked up print. But Top Banana has a title song where there's just this eccentric O-V-S order. Listen to this segment of them talking about an old burlesque bit and listen to a sentence like one banana have I. That might as well be not just one banana have I. That's object, verb, subject. Take a listen. I just came back from the fruit market. I have three bananas and I'm going to give you one of them. Oh, just a minute. You only have two bananas there. No, there's three bananas here and I'll prove it to you. One banana have I. That's right. Two bananas do I. That's true. One banana and two bananas make three bananas. Well, you're out of your mind. There's three bananas. In your own words, I'll show you you're wrong. Go ahead. One banana have I. Yeah. Two bananas do I. Yeah. One banana and two bananas makes... By golly, he's right. <laughs> Say, Mo, will you join me in a banana? I'd be delighted. One banana for you. Thank you. And a banana for me. Well, how about me? You eat the third banana. What, what the hell? In any case, you know, this is the time, you know, what's coming, which is that we want you to do something extra. But, you know, it really is a good deal because just for a nominal fee, if you get yourself some Slate Plus, then there are all sorts of things that happen. For one thing, you don't have to listen to any ads, as you already have with this episode, not by me, not by anybody else. And you get more show. You get an extra little bit And in my show, it sometimes connects to what we were talking about before. Sometimes it's just whatever was on my mind that day or the week before. So you get more show. And that's not only for whatever your favorite Slate podcast happens to be, but for all of them. There's some new things now about Slate Plus. So, for example, for the first month of it, you only have to pay a dollar. So, you know, we'll we'll talk about what the nominal fee is. It's, you know, several tens of dollars, but just one dollar for the first month. And with the show's slow burn and Dear Prudence, and everybody loves Dear Prudence, the fact is that with Slate Plus, you get extra episodes. So not just extra tag, but extra episodes. So you really ought to get yourself some Slate Plus because it really does enhance the Slate podcast experience. I can sincerely say that if I were just consuming Slate podcasts instead of actually grinding one out, I would have gotten myself Slate Plus a long time ago. And that's honest. And I think you all know that if I am one thing on this show, it is my true self. In any case, Slate Plus members and listeners, those of you who have already done it, it's survey time again. And this means that it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate. The idea is to help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It only takes a few minutes. It's not one of those long, nasty ones. And you can find it at slate.com slash survey. A little bit more about word order. Sometimes word order, as I've already hinted, isn't just about what order the words happen to come in for some random reason. Often, word order changes are about changing what you mean to say. So the business with Russian and the cat chasing the dog, there's a beautiful example of this in the Chinese's. And it's one of these things where it shows you how there are many different ways to be a language. And the thing that I love about these things is that a native speaker can't tell you 
Just like there are all sorts of things about English that we can't tell anybody unless some weird linguist explains. But these things are grammar. So, for example, if you're learning Chinese, one of the first things you notice is that there's no the and there's no a. It frankly makes the language seem kind of naked. You wonder how a language could do without the-ness and unness. Quite a few languages do, though. But this is the thing. There is no language where you cannot indicate definiteness or indefiniteness in any way. And it doesn't always have to be with some little weird word. There are other ways of doing it, such as with word order. So, for example, the guest has come in Mandarin. Ku lila. Ku is a guest. Lila is has come. Ku lila. Okay. The guest has come. Now, what you're thinking is, no the. It, it's not something like aku or something like that. It's just ku. So it's guest come did. That's what it is. So you're thinking, oh, how telegraphic. And in many ways, Mandarin is compared to English. But here, there's more going on than that. So guest come. Ku lila. Okay. But Here's how to say a guest has come. Like color. So, come guest did. If you say guest come did, that's the guest has come. If you say come guest did, that's how you say a guest has come. Now, nobody thinks of this, but in terms of the flow of meaning and who knows what at what time, when you say kulaila, that is the guest has come that we've talked about. Whereas if you say like kula, then that's you're sitting there in the chair, imagining it in a big study in this kind of book lined library. And it turns out that, you know, your ex-wife came or something like that. And the butler comes and says, a guest has come, sir. That would be like kula. Isn't that something? These things just leave you feeling like you're on a seesaw. You end up feeling like you're, you're Fats Waller in the 1930s singing a song called I'm on a Seesaw that nobody cares about but me that is massively catchy. And so you need to hear a little of it before we encounter our final thing. I'm on a seesaw. You throw me up and you throw me down. I don't know whether I'm here or there. So then there's also when word order is about the meanings of words themselves. And this is something that happens with adjectives. Now, the whole thing about why you say little black dress instead of black little dress is fascinating. I did that in a much earlier episode. So I'm not going to do that again. But think about romance languages once more. So amigo viejo in Spanish. Now, if you know some Spanish and then a little more Spanish, you know that it's not unknown to hear somebody say viejo amigo. So what's the difference? You learn this default idea that adjectives come after the noun, but then you keep hearing them coming before. So amigo viejo, friend old. Viejo amigo, old friend. What's the difference? Well, in Spanish, amigo viejo is my elderly friend, my friend on a cane. 
as opposed to viejo amigo, which is my old friend, you know, my buddy from way back. Those are two different kinds of old. If you think about it in some other language, you would probably have, and I don't even need to look, I'm sure there are languages where there are completely different words for elderly versus from going way back, my old friend. Or you have something like hombre pobre, a man poor, as opposed to pobre hombre, poor man. Hombre pobre, man with empty pockets. Pobre hombre, oh, poor little man. Different things, and I do know that there are languages where the difference between not having money and being cute and maybe vaguely pathetic, those are just completely different words. And so you get all sorts of little subtle businesses where it becomes clear that when you put the adjective before, it indicates a more intimate quality. It indicates something that's more inherent to the thing. Old friend. You can smell what that means. The two of you chewed bubblegum together, got drunk together. The poor little man. So you want to give him some bubblegum or you want to give him you know, something that'll make him drunk because things aren't going well. And that means that you'll see some poem or some title like the green leaves were blowing in the breeze. But you wouldn't say las hojas verdes, the leaves greens. You would say las verdes hojas. Because if you're talking about the green leaves, what you mean is, ah, leaves are green. You see a leaf and it's green and that's part of the charm. Greenness is inherent to the leaf. So las verdes hojas, not las hojas verdes. That's what you know somebody like me would put. And it would sound unidiomatic because if you're talking about the darling, wonderful, reminiscent green leaves, then it's verdes hojas to use the proper accent, not hojas verdes. Notice also, if you've got a spachgefühl for Spanish, so the sweet honey, la dulce miel, not la miel dulce, because la miel dulce implies that there's some other honey that tastes like pork chops or something like that. So there's the pork chop honey and then the sweet honey. But no, la dulce miel means, ah, sweet honey, sweet honey in the rock or something like that. Honey is sweet, usually. You know, it isn't technically. I've never quite understood this, but if you go to like a bee's nest and it's been abandoned, but there's that kind of crud on the outside of the nest. And you're always saying, ah, honey, I'm going to be like a bear in an old cartoon. Ever, you ever tasted that? And it basically just tastes like somebody's foot. It's, it's weird. In any case, however they do it, it's honey is inherently sweet. You know, I need to say, and I'm going to just say this very briefly, I cannot pretend that I don't have a book coming out now in two months that I think most of you would enjoy reading, so I have to hawk it a bit here. Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. You should pre-order yourself a copy. I'm holding one now. Listen, it's an actual physical object. These are the pages, and it's a very nice size. You want to carry it in your pocket if you have unusually big and ugly pockets, but it's one of those books that you kind of want to hold. It's kind of like a cat in that way. It's got a cute cover too. I didn't design it, so I'm not bragging. And also, I have to say, given that most of you now know that I have this other life, that if you want to read me on perhaps tangier matters than ones of word order, then you can find me at johnmcwhorter.substack.com, where I am writing rather furiously these days. Let's go out on a little more Edie Gourmet. More He Needs Me Now, because I just love the arrangement. I love the way she sings this. Listen to this mediocre her song and the way with arrangement and her charisma, plus a bit of nostalgia, you can really get kind of a high from what is really a thoroughly forgettable two-minute clip of recorded sound. Though he's in trouble, I know there must be something I can do. Will he remember my 
you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, you know, during the pandemic, I've been reading War and Peace. I decided if I'm ever going to do it, I'm going to do it now. War and Peace is the most majestically boring piece of literature I have ever encountered. I can't put it down. I warn you, I'm almost done at this point. But goodness, what a fascinatingly ponderous, boring book. I'm saying this, and I technically teach in a Slavic department. Just wanted to share that. Mike Wolo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>